Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. I am your host, Bob, and I'm really excited about this week's episode. Finally, I managed to make something ahead of when it is ideal for someone who listens to the podcast to make it themselves. <laughs> so like how many times when it's like, oh, it was a holiday weekend and here comes my episode on Monday saying, hey, this was a great thing to make on the holiday. It's like, well, great. When I have to wait a year for it to be the opportune time. Well, today's July 9th. That's what it is right now. I'm recording this on July 9th. Normally in my region, my area, southwestern Pennsylvania, starting about a week after extending through to about three weeks after the 4th of July, Independence Day. That's when you can forage chanterelle mushrooms in the woods, you know, pretty consistently. Like they're just popping up now. We got a little bit of rain today. So over the next week, I should be able to get a lot of them. But I was able to get enough today to do this recipe. But the recipe is not the chanterelle mushrooms. Like the, the mushrooms, they are an accoutrement to this. What this is, is boudin blanc, which is a white pudding. You know, you think about your boudin noir, that's your black pudding. Your boudin blanc is a white pudding, a white emulsified sausage that is, I, in my opinion, is the best pairing with chanterelle mushrooms. It is incredible. Now, normally boudin blanc is a wintry Christmas time sort of sausage, very rich, very delicate, but the flavor profile of it is very Christmassy. You know, the ingredients are pretty simple, but man, they just scream Christmas. However, however, when paired up with copious amounts of butter and chanterelle mushrooms, it is divine, divine. It is wonderful. It is the best thing. This is also, hmm, I don't have a rating system for the recipes, like how difficult they are. You sort of just get a, an idea for the difficulty based on how I talk about it, I guess. And I'll just come out and say, if I did have a rating system, I don't know what it would be. Uh, stars, you know, and this, this would be a four star recipe in that it's difficult. It is time consuming. There are a lot of steps. There are a few points of, uh, not points of failure, but opportunities for failure. This is an emulsified sausage, very much like hot dogs. So it's really important to manage temperature throughout the preparation of the recipe. But also, uh, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There is um, a lot of equipment that while technically isn't required to make this recipe, boy, it does make it a lot more convenient and effective whenever you're using the, the proper machines. Okay, so I'm not going to say that you can't make this recipe in a quote-unquote normally apportioned kitchen, but it would, it would increase the amount of time, increase the amount of effort, and increase the propensity for failure, I guess. Because, um, you know, the, the machines make it uh, a lot more consistent, uh, a lot more efficient. And uh, I'm going to say that they are fairly necessary. Of course, you know, I'll, I'll run down through what all you need for this. 
and I'll have links to the things in the show notes or whatever. Speaking of the show notes, check it out. The Imager album for the step-by-step -step photos of making the, the recipe. Probably not going to have any links to weird ingredients. That's, that's actually one of the reprieves for this is that the ingredients are dead simple. It's just, it's purely a process recipe. So we'll have links to, you know, some instances of equipment that I would recommend or, you know, are probably a good starter level or maybe not like bare bones starter level, like mid tier or something like that. Like I'm not going to put on there $2,500 Buffalo chopper or something like that, but let's get into what we need equipment wise, because that is, that is sort of the most daunting aspect of the recipe. Um, first of all, a meat grinder it doesn't have to be something enormous or overly powerful. Uh, I just use the KitchenAid stand mixer meat grinder attachment. Uh, on the back end, we will also need a sausage stuffer. Luckily, luckily, uh, you don't need a really, you know, professional level sausage stuffer for this. In fact, you can use something really janky like the KitchenAid stand, <laughs> the KitchenAid stand mixer sausage stuffer attachment, which in my opinion is one of the worst pieces of kitchen equipment that I have. But, you know, if I'm not going to be using a standalone sausage stuffer, it just has to suffice for small batches. This is a very uh, light and viscous farce. So it's uh, very forgiving for sausage stuffers that don't have a lot of a lot of purchase to them, you know? Whenever I say that you can use something really janky for this, it doesn't even have to be like technically like a sausage stuffer like that. If you even had one of those jerky gun, like caulking gun things where you put meat or mixed stuff into a tube and then shoot it out by clicking a ratchety trigger, that would technically probably work fine for this also. Be a little slow, but not that much slower than the absolute garbage uh, KitchenAid stand mixer sausage stuffer attachment. It is the bane of my existence, but sometimes you just don't want to break out, you know, a 5, 10, 15 pound lamb, you know, vertical or horizontal stuffer or something like that. All right, so what do we got? Meat grinder, sausage stuffer, a way to emulsify the the farce for the sausage. Now, the, the orthodox piece of equipment for this would probably be the food processor. However, I am not aware of a consumer grade food processor that would have a big enough bowl for even, you know, thing, when we get into how this recipe comes along, there's not a lot of uh, starting ingredients that kind of fluffs up to a fairly large volume. And if you, even if you used like a, you know, I, I, I'm assuming what the biggest is in a seven pint, seven pint bowl on the uh, Cuisinart food processor. Uh, that's not going to be enough, which means you'd have to work in shifts. You would have to work in batches which leads to problems of consistency and you're gonna make a huge mess. It's gonna take forever, whatever. Trust me, I've done it, I've done it. It works, it's fine, but you're gonna be committing yourself to probably an extra hour of, <laughs> of production. So what I would actually recommend is a high powered, large capacity blender. I used, you know, a Vitamix, which is kind of the Rolls Royce of home blending machines. However, the more I thought about it, even if you had like a, a large carafe ninja blender, that might actually work better than the Vitamix because 
the um, the blade mechanism on on the Ninja has like multiple tiers. So you have blades at the bottom, in the middle, at the top. I think it's like three rows of blades, more or less, and they're at an angle or whatever. But that actually works better for emulsifying a meat farce than the Vitamix does. What the Vitamix, you know, the benefit the the benefit of the Vitamix is that it has the power of like, you know, a chainsaw. It'll just, it'll really go through it. It'll really mix that up. It'll make a real nice smooth emulsion. But uh, yeah, but you want a big carafe on that because you want to be able to hold all the farce. You want to have enough power to be able to churn through that. And I think those Ninja blenders, if I recall correctly, I think they do max out at like 1500 watts of power, which should be sufficient for mixing this up. However, I would caution you because I don't know if the ninjas have this overheat, overwork, shutoff feature. Uh, you don't want to burn out the motor on your blender, so you don't want to you don't want to turn it on and let it just run and, and work through this like thickening farce and overheat or whatever. The Vitamix does have an, uh, like a cutoff so that if the motor heats up, it'll just crap not doesn't crap out turns off for a period of time and then uh it kind of protects itself against damage so don't break your blender making this but you know that is helpful last i think yeah last but not least and this one this piece of equipment is the least necessary of them all but in my opinion it has the biggest non-necessary the biggest unnecessary i don't even know what i'm saying here the jump in convenience is very big relative to the cost of the thing. So, yes, you could use like a real big mortar and pestle and somehow work this into an emulsion using whisks and the mortar and pestle and a wooden spoon. You could get to an emulsion and, you know, do it very rustic, very, you know, French farmhouse, 18th century Christmas time sausage preparation. You could definitely do that. Having a blender makes it infinitely easier. But, you know, you're looking at a fairly expensive machine. When it comes to poaching these sausages, if you happen to have an immersion circulator or a sous vide wand, two words for the same object, basically, it will make this part kind of set it and forget it. If you don't have those, you can definitely poach these on the stovetop, but you'll just have to be kind of more engaged with the poaching process, checking the temperature of the water every five or 10 minutes, adjusting the heat up, adjusting the heat down, trying to find a nice little equilibrium where it'll hold it at a consistent temperature for the duration of time necessary to fully set these sausages. But the, the cost of an immersion circulator, because this was such a trendy piece of kitchen equipment like five years ago they started off the anova brand and i think they were like 150 200 bucks something like that those were very popular they had a sous vide standalone appliances which was like a heated aquarium basically that could you know cost upwards of a thousand dollars or whatever but they also had these like knockoff brands that like i got mine at aldi i think for 35 dollars and the reason that that's fine is that uh, the technology is very simple. What this is, is it's a, it's a curling iron with a temperature controller, or actually it's just a power controller and a timer, more or less. And what you do is you mount it on the side of a stock pot or a cambro or something like that. 
You fill it with water up to the line between the min and the max line. You set a desired temperature and you set a duration. And the heating element in there turns on, heats the water up until it hits the temperature that you're looking for, and then it toggles it off. And then the heating element's off. When the water temperature drops a couple of degrees, it turns back on, brings up. So basically it holds that water temperature at this consistent temperature for the prescribed amount of time. And there's like a little impeller in the tube that circulates the water a little. It gets a little bit of a current going so that it's not just creating a hot spot in the water on one side of the stockpot. But yeah, if you, if you have a cheap one, if you have an expensive one, if you just have one, great. If you have all the other equipment, and you're like, I want to make this sausage, but I want to go buy a new tool. Don't worry about it. You don't need it. But if you have it, fantastic. It makes it so easy. And it's at the end of the whole process. So after you've already invested all this time and effort and worrying that the emulsion's going to break and that your, your casings are going to explode and all this kind of stuff, it's nice to finish out on, uh, on, on coasting, <laughs> so to speak. All right, so let's get into how we actually make this a boudon blanc. Whenever I said that the ingredient list is A, it's simple, and B, it seems a little light. It is, but uh, when we get to mixing them all together, it's going to be much more voluminous than the starting measurements are going to suggest. So we're using one pound of pork, and we want fatty pork. Uh, pork shoulder would be ideal. I had uh, just so happened a little more than one pound of the shoulder end of a whole pork loin. So it had some nice intramuscular fat, some back fat, that kind of stuff, but uh, it wasn't as fatty as pork shoulder would be, but it, it was fine. So you want one pound of that cut into, you know, a relatively small dice, you know, a half inch, three quarter inch cubes or whatever. Uh, it has to be able to fit into your meat grinder. One pound of chicken breast, boneless, skinless chicken breast. If you can just, I mean, I assume most people are going to be buying chicken breast at the grocery store, so you might as well just go with that. I processed one of my chickens and, you know, it, it, to get one whole pound of breast meat off of a heritage breed free range chicken is a tall order. So my chicken was a mixture of chicken breast and chicken thigh and uh, yeah cut that into reasonably sized pieces as well we're going to be using one and a half tablespoons of kosher salt and listen this recipe it is more difficult it's a little bit more involved so i'm just going to go ahead and read off the actual measurements here normally i say go check the the plain text recipe in the show notes for the actual measurements and i'm just listing off what's in it but why not let's be scientists shall we so one and a half tablespoons of kosher salt, one teaspoon of ground white pepper. Okay. Can you, can you just use black pepper? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. You can. White pepper does have a different flavor, a different aroma in its, you know, ground form. So I started off with whole white peppercorns and then I ground those myself. That is a little bit more appetizing than whenever you get it already ground for some reason. It smells like the rhino exhibit at the Pittsburgh Zoo. That is exactly what it smells like. Or at least it smells exactly like what the rhino exhibit at the Pittsburgh Zoo smelled like one summer like eight years ago, because that's my frame of reference for this whole thing. But yeah, 
one teaspoon of ground white pepper. If you don't have it, okay, whatever. But you can find this at the grocery store, it'll be fine. One and a half teaspoons of quatre piece. That is a four spice French spice kit, which is equal, well, no, it's actually not equal parts. It's black peppercorns, grated nutmeg, cinnamon, and cloves. And the recipe for this, if you wanna make like a little jar of it, is three tablespoons of black peppercorns, one tablespoon of nutmeg, ground nutmeg, two teaspoons of cinnamon, two teaspoons of cloves, and then you wanna grind that as finely as possible using either a spice grinder or mortar and pestle, whatever. But you're gonna make this into basically a kind of an espresso colored uh, powder, more or less. And then we're gonna use one and a half teaspoons of that. But you can make that in a little jar and then have it for other things. And what other things? Well, I don't know, things that you want to taste like Christmas, or if perhaps you have a chai mix, or if you, you know, like a loose leaf chai that you would be putting into a tea ball or a tea bag, you put a little bit of, you know, a half teaspoon of this quattro piece, and uh, it is it is really nice. It really kicks that up a notch, okay? So the quattro piece, eight, Eggs, holy jeez, we got a lot of volume coming out of these eggs. We'll talk about that in a moment. Two and a half cups of whole milk. Now, because I was using the fatty end of a pork loin, but it didn't have quite as much fat as I would have preferred, I used one and a half cups of whole milk and one cup of heavy cream. And I used heavy cream specifically from the spring house, okay? because the Springhouse heavy cream is the thickest cream I've ever seen in my life. You can't pour it out of the bottle. Luckily it comes in a plastic jug, so you have to squeeze it out like toothpaste. So I was like, that'll work. That will work for show. Uh, three tablespoons of all-purpose flour, and then you're gonna need natural hog casings, because, you know, why not? We're making, we're making sausage, natural hog casings. Let's see, with all this, Depending on the diameter of the hog casing, if they are a wider diameter, like what I used, I think they were like probably 35 millimeter or something like that. I only needed a couple of feet of casing to hold all the farce. Um, but if you if you pull eight feet of casing out, that will be more than enough. I can't imagine. I mean, if you were using uh, sheep casing, you know, like little breakfast sausage casings, probably you could fill eight feet, but you're going to need some of that. Okay. The important thing to remember when you're making an emulsified sausage is temperature control, okay? You want everything to stay cold, uh, and this is, it's going to be annoying, you know? Some people go so far as to put their grinding attachments, like the, the horn, the, the, the screw, the worm, whatever it's called, um, the blades, the, uh, the plates putting all that stuff in the freezer for a half hour to get them nice and cold, I find that that might be overkill unless you're using a really big uh, sausage grinder. If you're using a small one, you're going to pass through there fairly quickly. Um, you're not going to have as much as many revolutions per minute or as much horsepower behind it to really warm up those uh, components. But you definitely want to keep all your meat really cold. Um, to the extent that whenever you, you cut your meat up into the half-inch dice or one-inch cubes or whatever, put them on a baking sheet and put them in the freezer for like 15 minutes. They're probably not going to get 
firm or crunchy during that time, but they will get nice and cold and that is good. Okay. So we're going to grind our uh, meat through. You can do this on a coarse grinding plate the first time, or I mean, you only have to grind this once because we're going to emulsify it later, but you don't have to do it super fine, despite the fact that the texture of the sausage when it's done is going to be like a marshmallow. It is going to be like a cloud. Um, it's going to, so your emulsified sausages, if you think about the texture of a hot dog or of bologna, uh, where Yes, it is meat, but it is like uh, reconstituted meat. It's kind of like Arby's roast beef. You feel like you feel like it came as a capsule and you threw it into a bucket of water and then it re reconstituted itself into meat. Um, that's sort of the the texture that you're going through for. But this product will have much less density, much less mass per unit of area, which means it's going to be very fluffy. It's going to be very fluffy. It's like eating a Christmas flavored cloud and it is remarkable. It's magical. It's magical. It's like a unicorn sausage. Anyway, so grind, grind all your stuff. You can put it through on the coarse grind, whatever. Then we're going to mix together all of our ingredients and it's, it's going to be really wet. Okay. It's going to, it's going to seem preposterously wet. It's going to be like soup and you're going to think, I've done this wrong, but you didn't, okay? Because it's going to transform twice. There are two metamorphoses that are going to happen as we produce this uh, recipe. So you grind up all your meat there, crack all your eggs into a bowl, in a big mixing bowl, put all your meat in there, add your eggs, add your milk, add your uh, spices, the salt, the white pepper, the quatrapies, uh, the three tablespoons of flour, Mix it all together. You can use a wooden spoon or your hand to just mix this and incorporate it. It's gonna, and like I said, it's going to be very soupy, very wet. Add that as much as possible to either your blender, your food processor, or whatever. If you can get it all in there, that's the best. If you can't get it all in there, we'll work in three shifts, which means we'll we'll put half of the mixture in. We'll emulsify that. We'll pour that in, out into a mixing bowl. We'll put the other half of the mixture in. We'll emulsify that. And then we'll pour that into the stuff that came out the first time. Mix that up. And then uh, take half of that back into the blender and mix that. So what you're doing is you're, it's like one, batch one, batch two. And then batch three is a combination of batch one and two. And that will get you pretty close to the, I mean, that'll, that'll be as consistent as you need it to be like horseshoes and hand grenades, okay? When you blend this up, whenever you emulsify this, it is going to go from a fairly disgusting soupy texture of ground meat suspended in an eggnog-like consistent uh, liquid to marshmallow fluff, whipped cream, or kind of like a bubblegum colored not foam, not a foam, but like stiff peaks with a meringue. That's kind of the texture, a little bit denser than that though. But it will it will normalize the texture and it'll be smooth and slightly pink and a little shiny. And that's what you're going for, okay? That is your uh, boudin uh, farce. Once it's all blended up and it's emulsified, I would recommend 
putting it into the refrigerator for 30 minutes just to maintain that cold temperature. Plus what that'll allow you to do is wash a lot of the stuff that you've been working with. Wash your, your, your meat grinder, wash the, the carafe on the blender or the carafe on the food processor, wash the bowls that you've been using, like clean up the counter, do all this kind of stuff while it's in there and it's cold. Then, then you get your, your hog casings and you get them into a bowl of cold water and let them soak for, you know, 15, 20 minutes and then find the end and kind of run some water through those so that they open up so they're nice and slippery and you can thread them onto the stuffing horn of you know, of your stuffer, whether it's the KitchenAid attachment or it's a standalone stuffer or it's the plastic nozzle on a jerky shooter or whatever. But thread your uh, casings onto that implement and then get your farce out of the fridge and proceed to pipe this into the casing until all the farce has been deposited into the casing. It's, listen, it's gonna feel like a water balloon. It's gonna be very soft, very flexible. When you twist your sausages off, you can give them a few turns to reduce the slack in the casing and that'll tighten them up somewhat. You don't want to make them too tight and too shiny because they will expand a little bit during the next step, which is the second metamorphosis of this product, okay? And you don't want them to explode whenever they set because they're, the flour in there, it, it will expand a little bit as it gets fully hydrated and it's sitting in this, in this mix. When the proteins are cooked very gently during the poaching process, they will expand slightly. So you can start off with uh, a sausage that has a little bit of give to it, a little bit of balance, and it will firm up when we poach them. Okay, now poaching. How are we gonna do this? This is as fraught with danger as the part where you had to keep it cold the whole time so that you don't break the emulsion. This is uh, dangerous too because you don't wanna heat them up too quickly so that they rupture. You also don't want to break the emulsion while they're poaching because then that you just have this sausage casing that's filled with kind of a mealy, grainy protein and um, uh, completely separated liquid content, and that's no good. But uh, if you're using the immersion circulator, if you're using the sous vide wand, set that to uh, 175 degrees and give, give it like two and a half hours on the clock, okay? Get that started in the emulsion or in the, um, in the water, heating up the water, circulating it through. Don't let it get all the way up to 175 degrees before adding your sausages to the poach. You want them to come up to temperature gently, but you want there to be, uh, you don't want to put them in cold water and then start the thing. So uh, I started at like 132 degrees, 135, somewhere around there. That way they're not going to expand super quickly. Like they're not going to just blow up and rupture. If you threw them into a pot of boiling water, then you're going to have empty casings and a bunch of floating goo. So you get them in there. And they'll, the water should come up to 175 degrees within 15, 20 minutes, I would assume. And then hold them there at that temperature for 45 minutes to an hour. What that will do is that will ensure that the internal temperature of those sausages will get up to around 160 degrees 
which is for a prolonged period of time is long enough to be a considered fully cooked. You know, the time temperature matrix is a function of time and temperature. 165 degrees is considered instant death for bacterial pathogens, but 160 degrees held for a period of time, and I don't know exactly what these are off the top of my head, but held for a period of time is also sufficient, okay? So you get it up to 160 over this period of time, and uh, then you can very gently remove the sausages from the water. Now, when I twist those sausages off, I kind of leave them all as like links, like linked links, so that it's like this string of pearls type of thing, and they're all together. And then once they're poached, that farce is going to set. This is They're going to solidify. They're going to tighten up. They're going to have more of a hot dog consistency to them as opposed to the water balloon consistency. So when you remove them from that poaching liquid, they should go directly into an ice bath to chill. What this will do is prevent the casings from getting wrinkly because if they cool down slowly, um, they'll kind of shrink a little bit and the casings won't shrink at the same rate as the farce inside does. And you'll get these like wrinkly sausages. Nobody likes that. So shock them cold in an ice bath and that will, it'll stop the cooking process. They will already have been set and you'll have a nice smooth, uh, shiny surface on the casings of that way. Once you've got them in the ice bath, I mean, let them in there for five, 10 minutes or whatever, that'll completely chill them down and then use a pair of scissors to snip the individual links and they will retain their shape and they will look like uh, zombie skin sausages. I mean, they'll look like white kind of logs. Okay. Now, ideally what you would want to do at this point is put them on a wire rack over a cookie sheet, a baking sheet, and put them in the fridge overnight until the next day. You know, you make them one day, eat them the next day. When it comes time to preparing them, when it comes time to prepare them, sorry, I was mixing tenses or whatever there, in a heavy skillet, whether it's stainless steel or cast iron, whatever, it's not particularly relevant. What I did was maybe about a half cup or a cup of chicken stock, which is actually chicken stock that I made from the chicken that I killed to make this sausage, which is really cool. It's got a full circle, circle of life. But anyway, about a cup of chicken stock and uh, three or four tablespoons of butter. And you want to do this on a moderate heat, like a medium to medium high, and then maybe oscillate back and forth between medium and medium high. And just gently start off by simmering these sausages in this water and chicken stock mix. I'm, I'm sorry, not water and chicken stock, butter and chicken stock mixture. And then as that chicken stock all kind of evaporates away, you're left with uh, essentially hot butter in the pan and you're rolling these around and you're flipping them and you're trying to keep them from getting too hot too quickly. And you will very lightly, very lightly brown the casing of the sausages. And, and then you can remove them, let them rest for a little bit so that you don't lose a lot of the moisture in the sausage whenever you cut into it. When you remove them from the heat to set them on a platter to rest in that pan with the remnants of the butter and the leached out flavor components of the sausages, you know, the, the pepper, the nutmeg, the cinnamon, the clove. Oh boy, it's gonna be very aromatic. 
Throw in your uh, cleaned chanterelle, mush ugh, chanterelle mushrooms and saute those until they are soft and delicious. And then sprinkle those over the sausages and serve them together. And it is the perfect pairing. It is wonderful. As rich and uh, Christmassy flavored as these sausages are, the lightness, the springiness, the very like cloud-like, almost like a pate texture will um, give you some affordance for, you know, the hot weather. Like, you know, there's a, what I consider to be um, like a Spanish counterpart to this, mainly because of the flavor profile and the, the proliferation of eggs in the recipe is a sausage called Butafara Du, which is D apostrophe O-U, meaning Butafara as a sausage, a sausage of eggs. Um, I don't remember how many eggs it uses per five pound batch, but uh, it's a ridiculous amount and it's all egg yolks. So it produces a, oh yeah, and also um, it uses Madeira wine. So what you end up with is a very heavily seasoned fortified wine flavored sausage that is waxy with egg yolk. It is so rich. It is like something that I feel like you you really should only eat it in during a blizzard. Um, if you eat that in uh, July, like I like to eat these Boudin Blanc, uh, Boudin Blanc um, I feel like you would have a stroke immediately. But uh, yeah, so this one, the texture is certainly the uh, saving grace for this. So, and, it, and the fact that it pairs so beautifully with chanterelles. If you're going to be going foraging, if you have a, if you have a spot, if you have a guy, you know, if you're into it, this is a wonderful pairing for chanterelle mushrooms. And I'm not going to get into the rules of foraging or identifying mushrooms or anything like that. I will just trust that you are not going to kill yourself with poisonous mushrooms. And chanterelles are one of the Oh, what's it called? There's four of them that you can't you can't miss. You can't mess them up. They're so distinctive. You're not going to mistake them for something else. But anyway, Boudin Blanc, classic French sausage, tastes like Christmas, uh, feels like a cloud in your mouth. It's wonderful. Good luck tackling this one. Talk to you guys later.